0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Miles Sherry, Wealth Manager, asks Laura Bottega, Chief Operating Officer of International Equities at Morgan Stanley, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, questions posed by investors including how they should invest in a volatile world, could today's big companies lose their dominant positions, and if a diversified investment is still the best way of capturing long-term gains. Welcome to this week's Word on the Street. So today we're going to take two of our favourite themes and basically just stick them in the blender and try and get the best of both worlds. So it's always interesting to hear from our some of our superstar guests across the industry as well as consider what is front of mind of our clients and investors. So that's exactly what we're going to do today, supported by the insights and help of Will as ever. So today's guest is Laura. Laura, thank you very much for your time today. It's great to have you with us in person much appreciated. I've got a great list of questions for both of you to unpick today, stemming from an investment event we did just the other night. It was essentially a bit of a panel discussion with industry experts trying to generate some signal from what, let's be frank, is a pretty noisy environment. There were plenty of questions from the audience, we got through some of them, many we didn't, and we'll try and get through as many of those as we can today. So, Laura, let's start with you, please. Thanks again for for coming in. Do you want to maybe start by just telling us a little bit about what you and your team do?
1: Thank you. Great to be here. I've spent almost my entire career thinking about stocks from different angles and particularly talking to clients all around the world about them. Uh, I'm the COO for Morgan Stanley's International Equity Team, which is led by William Locke, and we run a really popular strategy global franchise, which investors would know as global brands. Going back over 20 years, our team has really been focused on a subset of equities, which we call quality or even ultra quality equities. And that means companies that are profitable and likely to remain profitable going forward with predictable growth or superior earnings and usually compared to what you're more likely to see from average companies. So we think ultra quality equities are really rare and you need to be really disciplined about how high you set that quality bar.
0: Yeah, and I guess it depends on how you define it, which I'm sure we'll touch on later. But it's a really interesting space and we do have a part of our wider team who focus on finding quality stocks too. So hopefully that's something some of our listeners will be familiar with and is something the team have done very well for many years. But Will, before we get into that question list I referenced, it will be remiss of us not really to try and set the steen. What's caught your eye over the past week? It's been another busy one
2: yeah what hasn't caught my eye or the team's eye, it is busy and as you say markets remain quite messy quite chaotic right at the center of it is this kind of big rate sell-off so rising yields across many time frames And I still think it's quite hard to make sense of it all, to sort of force it into uh, some sort of coherent model or narrative. You know, on the one side, you've got, you know, the theory, which we have talked about before. If you raise interest rates sharply, what you should get is slower growth because you increase the traction of saving and and, uh, spending should suffer as a result. But on the other hand, the incoming evidence sort of seems to suggest the US economy is kind of going through some sort of economic boom and... You know, so last week we talked about. I think we. I I can't remember if I mentioned this or not. But retail sales, you know, came in strong. I mean, super strong. Yeah, yeah. So that, so that I think, like, on an annualized rate, U.S. retail sales is now growing and has been for the last six months at about seven, eight percent. That's double the pace Mm. of what it was pre-pandemic. So I mean, there's something going on. uh, You know, a a little bit funnier, And, and I think. It's different this time. I think that's the thing you've got to keep in mind. I mean, I don't think you've got to sort of completely abandon all hope of having a model that explains the world. or But I think just keeping in mind that every single time is different and that statistical inference is difficult when you've only got, what, 12 economic cycles post-war that we can really look at for the US. So don't have any firm rules. Keep an open mind. I know that's wishy-washy as you are sure, an absolute it? i've said it
0: before you're an absolute pro at giving a balanced answer i will try no one I, or maybe no one, i didn't want to say it i'll try and get a concrete yeah. answer out of you as we
2: said it's president truman i think he said for the love of pete give me a one <laughs> it'll, it'll be my winner of the year yeah. if i get it yeah. but
0: um but Laura, all jokes aside will does outline some of the complexities with understanding the outlook at the moment so how do you and your team interpret all the incoming chaos and and human tragedy, let's be frank at the moment, around the world that we're seeing at present.
1: Yeah, I think you hit on an important point there. Uh, Of course, we're also keeping an eye on what seems like escalating conflict Mm. abroad, even more geopolitical uncertainty from the Middle East against an already difficult and complicated backdrop of tension between superpowers. And all it does for us is underscore potential concerns for the global economy and markets ahead despite interesting signals that we're seeing. So we're really happy to shore up in quality, if you like. We keep it really simple. We try to focus on what's happening at the stock level. And if, if we choose better companies that can navigate with uh, resilience and pricing power, then we have the freedom not to have to worry too much about what second guessing macro developments. On long-term wealth building, which is what we're all about, you know, we we really prefer companies in software and services and medical technology and consumer staples. And we think that companies in these spaces deserve our attention perhaps more in more uncertain times.
0: And I guess you touched on some of the more intangible points there. Do you want to maybe just expand on that a little bit more, and also explain really why why investors should care?
1: Yeah, they matter a lot. So intangible assets. What are they in the first in the first instance? And generally, we think that companies with strong brands, or licenses, or networks are more likely to enjoy a long term advantage against their competitors, especially if they're married with good management who are thinking about the long term. So if a company can use its brand to charge more for products or services because the product is superior or perhaps in tune with what the consumer wants, then that's a really good starting point for a strong top line. Consumer goods that we buy, regardless of what's happening in the macro or the geopolitical sphere, examples there might be things that clean your kitchen or beauty products. That's a really good example. In business, it's different. Uh, what about companies that offer services to other companies that are mission critical, right? So software, or uh, even in the healthcare space, uh, quality needles and syringes for hospitals.
0: And I guess this is stuff, right, that should be in need regardless to an extent on the economic environment.
1: Exactly right. So if the products, and then further, if that those products aren't particularly expensive to make, so that then creates, with a higher price, a fatter gross margin, or a cushion, if you will, to protect the company against one of events.
2: And as as an aside, if we want to go back to that interest rate rising, still raising, rising, could be either. either. Yeah, one of the the sort of ex-post explanations for the economy's resilience, I think it was one of the ECB's central bankers, Isabel Schnabel, mentioned this at Jackson Hole, the annual... Get together of, the, of central yeah, bankers. Yeah, uh, it's one you probably want to avoid if you are a normal human <laughs> being. But it's uh, it's pretty interesting to the to the uh, chimpier variety like me. And one of the stories there is that the rise in intangible capital, and I think intangible capital as a proportion of overall U.S. investment has trebled since the nineteen eighty, I think it is roughly. That that may be a little bit more resilient. So the massless, weightless. Uh, you know intangible economy may be a little bit more resistant to rising interest rates so that's one of the ex post explanations why the economy still tr- seems to be trundling on in spite of central bankers putting a brick wall in its path
0: no really really interesting stuff and i guess it nicely ties into the first question on my list from our investment circle event the other night and hopefully laura this is this is hopefully your your bread and butter really because mm-hmm. the first one is what about the magnificent 7 so of course we're thinking about the largest seven companies in the US stock market here many of which are big name brands can they continue to dominate and what happens if they don't i guess that's particularly relevant given You've got the size lots of, of them this in, week, exactly we, yes. it's, it's topical
1: it's been topical all year i'd say so some of these very famous companies have really dominated market returns and that's all bound up with this concept of what is the revolutionary effect of a of the potential of AI, Will's uh, getting
0: excited in the winter. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, sorry, I rabbit on about this the whole time, Laura. So I'm glad it's you not me talking about it because I get yeah I get teased.
1: Well, it's 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 super interesting and it is worth paying attention to. If you think about um, what's actually happening, is predictive AI has been around for some time, mm-hmm. and what people are excited about is generative AI. Right, the the technology's ability to find patterns in data and then produce content in different formats. Really, that's the the best way to to simplify what's happening. Um, And that's really caught everyone's attention this year since since the launch of ChatGPT. So what's interesting is our fund will only own one of these magnificent seven, which is a very large and dominant software company because it's really monetizing this new technology. And we think they'll also better be able to manage some of the data privacy and other ethical challenges that AI could bring. So we are quite careful not to get caught up in the hype or to overpay for some of these investments, especially at this point. We don't typically go for autos or semis, which are really in the news and are really too cyclical for what we're trying to do. And of course, there are some companies that appear to be willfully exploiting private data, which again, uh, maybe stores up risk for the future. <laughs> So what is interesting though, beyond those seven, we think one should pay careful attention where you can find business models that we call walled gardens, a company that's got valuable proprietary data, and then you combine it with AI and maybe accelerate the potential of that data And companies, in our view, that fall in that category are financial services firms that provide data to other financial services firms or even consultants. So we don't think AI kills the consultant. And then generally, uh, I would say AI really is, in our view, more of an evolution rather than a revolution. And so we're going to keep focusing on on the, the, the global brands that take advantage of this technology, but also those that have proprietary data and pricing power.
2: And the other thing I'd just add to that, I mean, that's Laura covered it all, but the other points, as we said before, These companies are in the news this week because of the earnings reports coming in. What we can say without making any specific recommendations, which you know this call is not about, is that expectations are quite lofty. I think if you're looking at the Magnificent Seven, the sort of implied earnings CAGA, so the compound annual growth rate expected by analysts, you'd have to double your growth rate from the last decade to be able to sort of justify. So, so there is, there are some expectations for these companies to be. There's some exciting stuff. they're amazing companies, all that kind of thing. But yeah, just, just be a bit wary. And I think the message that we continue to bang on about, and I'm sorry if this is boring, is well, it's also just if you look at past technological revolutions, just keep in mind that you want to spread your net or design your net quite broadly, because the gains can go far away from the initial breakthrough in sector terms. I can think of 100 examples, which I'm not going to trawl through on this call but just remember that's the nature of you know technological revolutions is that yes in the start in a gold rush you buy the picks and shovels but in reality big mm. game-changing technology it transforms stuff a long long way away from the point of breakthrough
0: and i guess it's something that we could probably debate for for hours on end and
2: i will if you allow me but you're not but going i'm not to going to, to allow yes, you to yes, so
0: let's yes. let's move on to the yes. next topic and i'll come to you if i may for this one will that makes it a nasty <laughs> question
2: <laughs> it involves involve
0: history and i think you yeah, can yeah, interpret yeah. it maybe in two ways this question one mm. in terms of the humanitarian impacts that we're sadly seeing at the moment but also with respect to the economic mm. environment that that we're touching on so simplistically the next question is is the world a more dangerous place today relative to say 10 50 maybe even 100 years ago
2: Gosh, that is, that is a difficult question. So, I mean, I'd make a couple of points. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways of doing this, and, and I would recommend... It's a subject that's had a lot of research, attracted a lot of research. So Stephen Pinker famously wrote a book, Better Angels of Our Nature. He updated his statistics in what was it called Enlightenment Now. You can go on to Max Rosa's Our World in Data website. They've got lots of data you can look at. There's loads of academic articles studying. And the big debate seems to be, should we look at this relative or absolute? Are you population adjusted or just in absolute terms? Now, from my perspective, I can see the argument behind both. But if you think most amazing statistic i think this is but you've got i think it's seven percent of the people who have ever lived are alive on the planet today so in a way wow. yeah i mean it's amazing yeah, is isn't it yeah that yeah staggering. Staggering. it's sort of beyond what you'd expect someone fact check me and send in please but yes i'm pretty sure on that but that sort of to me suggests that the relative story is much the better way to approach this and i think as steven pinker and others suggest that the answer would be no that doesn't mean that it can't get more violent. It shouldn't be a source of kind of extrapolative optimism or pessimism, to be honest. We can only tell you what's happened up to this point. We have, of course, because of technology, assembled a a gigantic ability to destroy ourselves several times over, and that is to be aware of. But what I would steer clear of is this idea that we're living in particularly dangerous times just because of that ability to you know, to, to do so, and just remember. I think the thing to keep in your head is, and there's again loads of studies on this in terms of media incentives, social media incentives, is all about shock, disgust, yeah. all the kind of things that you need. And there will always be in a popu- in a population of the size that we're living in, there will always be enough bad news to fill a twenty four hour news feed. That's just a sad fact. And at the moment, they're not having trouble feeding feeding that news feed. But don't let that skew your perspective on where we are in terms of the progress made over the last several centuries millennia whatever other time frame you want to look at and and do the research that's what i would suggest there's loads of interesting stuff on this
0: got it and tied to that bringing it forward to the present day a natural follow-on question we got is around the events happening in Israel and Gaza at the moment. We've touched on the dreadful humanitarian impact, but what threats does that pose here and now in the future in terms of the wider economic outlook?
2: Yeah, I mean, so far, I mean, as we pointed out, you know, neither Israel nor Palestine are sort of, you know, major economies in the sort of minds of the global capital markets. So on their own, they're not going to change the you know the course of a globally diversified portfolio you know there are a couple of things just to continue to think about one is the kind of transmission through into oil prices and what people are arguing is that the incentive to accept iranian barrels and the incentives to provide by saudi arabia to very important producers obviously That may have been altered by this crisis, and that's just something to bear in mind. The other sort of scenario analysis that lots of people are doing is sort of, you know, how could the conflict widen out? Could uh, the two-front war scenario or broader kind of societal disruption in the region, what does that do to oil supply. And again, this is the sort of cold calculating take from a portfolio yep. from a global portfolio perspective. For the moment, they're thankfully not front and center, but these are things to continue to watch. And I, I you know, again, we, we point this out regularly. Just remember that this industry is is among many which is full of overnight armchair experts. And only recently, there are a load of people who are masquerading as armchair epidemiologists are now knowledgeably telling us about what happens next and the <laughs> whole history. So just beware. I mean, I, I do, again, the warning here is the greater the confidence someone predicts the future, the less you should trust them. I would say that confidence is inversely proportionate to skill or genuine knowledge. In this case, there are far fewer genuine experts than those who would pretend to be.
0: Let's move ahead on something yes. separate. If we think about the next 12, 18 months, we get this every four or five years or so. We've got the US and UK elections coming up, headline-grabbing stuff. We get lots of press around it. Does it matter in terms of an economic perspective, Laura? I'm guessing you and your team can kind of take a backseat and don't have to pay too much attention towards this, luckily for you. But Will, what are your thoughts? Any forecasts? You'd probably be absolutely crazy to give me any. I'm
2: hoping, yeah, I'm hoping Laura and I might agree (laughs) on this. But I mean, generally... You know, in spite of sort of claims to the contrary, I'm not sure the occupant of the Oval Office has much to do with the returns on offer in the stock markets or more broadly, to be honest. I mean, it's very hard. You know, there's loads of really interesting studies of looking at the U.S. presidents in the post-war period and looking at sort of different market regimes, economic regimes, and even trying to, lag, you know, account for the lagged effects of policies implemented during particular regimes. Mm the answer is unclear. And I I think if you look at former President Trump and look at his time in office, and you can try and look at it either from, you know, late 2016, when he won the election, or actual when he gets into uh, the Oval Office. But again, you know, the, the, the story that you look at from an equity market perspective is, you know, the downs are explained quite a lot by exogenous events, the pandemic. And I think it would be hard to blame President Trump for that you know people can talk about the handling of the crisis and so on and have views on that but in a way just remember that, that I think there's a there's a difference between in democratic societies what we tend to do is place quite considerable checks and balances on domestic policy making congress is an important one the you know the legislative branch is an important area there in the uk uk elections next year i mean at one point that we would make is that the choice on offer this time around looks a bit less stark in terms of political ideological terms. than possibly the last election would suggest that there's probably less to choose between. Uh, And remember also that the UK economy is irrelevant from a capital markets perspective, anyway. A small Uh, fish in a big pond. It's a small fish in a big pond. And even those equities, even those stock markets quoted domestically, so the FTSE, the FTSE 250 or whatever, even they, a lot of their earnings are derived from overseas. And I think with the FTSE 100, there was a Bank of England study, ages ago now, but looked at what explains the variability of FTSE's returns. And they found that I think 95% on a five-year rolling basis was explained by factors overseas. So... Yes, not that we don't matter. No, yeah, no, and it's important to us who live here, isn't it? We do. You know, but yes, but but from an investor perspective, keep in mind it's the U.S. that sets the beat for the world economy, and will continue to for some time yet. So yes, and and U.S. elections could be relevant in that context, but not decisive. And sticking to the U.S.
0: and bringing it slightly more back to the present day, there's been a fairly regular turnover of aspiring speakers in the speakers of the House. Sorry, in the U.S. Government shutdown, it's something that we've been hearing about over the course of this year. We might see more of it in the fourth quarter. Is that realistic?
2: think people are still worrying about it yes i mean it's something still that's going to continue to be in the news and make people feel unnerved about the potential for the u.s to, to let sounds explain. pretty scary it does doesn't it but I, again i mean i think there are checks here so one of the things that i had mentioned the other day which is important to bear in mind is active duty military pay Um so that happens every two weeks i don't think even in previous shutdowns that's ever been missed so that's a kind of there are some stops in the system to prevent something going on for a really, really long time because that would be politically extremely... Extremely unpopular, or so it's thought. So it's not impossible, and yes, the sort of congressional backdrop remains, you know, fractious, difficult. All the things you want to say. That's not totally unusual through the course of history, and yes, there are some unusual aspects about this. But beware again of sort of following, you know, dancing too much to the tune of the media narrative. I don't know. Laura's nodding. <laughs> I, am, I am nodding. I'm
1: you know happy to stay out of calling elections or, or even the, the next. Very weekend. sensible. But the, I mean, I think regardless of what happens, we think the the regulatory environment continues to to prove more complex yes. more difficult for companies generally
2: mm-hmm. exactly. that's interesting yeah. yes very interesting is that an- antitrust and or is that sort of
1: all sorts uh, mm-hmm. antitrust and even environment yeah um wh- wherever you are in the world this, these are these are risks that face face us uh, face the planet
0: yes. and, and let's unpick that environment point a bit more because that was next on my list and you can kind of badge demographics and climate change into one here so On one side, you've got a question here worrying about overpopulation and damage to the environment. And another is taking a slightly different lens of the debate, I guess you could say. In terms of worrying about population aging so what are the effects there how do you both think about these laura let's maybe start on you given your comments there
1: sure well of course if, if we're exposed to consumer staples we have to be thinking about uh, demographics and population aging with people born today expected to live well beyond 100 years old and what people describe now is a multi-stage life that creates new categories of products and services Everything from smart apparel that encourages you to track uh, and live a healthier lifestyle or even software that helps you upskill for a later life job. But of course, on the other hand, uh, more people living longer has a massive effect on the resources of the planet. Mm. And I think this does weigh heavily, perhaps even more, on the minds of the younger consumer and in most cases uh, where we see that such risks are potentially financially material that's where we go talk to companies and that's where our research team comes in and we'll we'll go see a beer company about how are they managing their water supply and desalinating water or how are how's a company that makes tissues engaged with solutions for deforestation there's any number of, of of big issues where more people and fewer resources come into play i think there's another sort of overarching issue as well which is how do companies generally adapt to the consumer of the future. And, and I think there, you really need to think about, like what does that future consumer want? Increasingly, hyper-personalization. So super customized products, products just for you. And then how much information does the consumer need before they even purchase? How easy is it for the consumer to move from the store To the virtual environment, and then even back to the store, Mm. and how frictionless is it when they pay? So these are all important trends that global brands need to be thinking about in terms of their future resilience and their ability to innovate. Brilliant,
2: brilliant. I'll take a slightly different angle, just for sort of you know, just for interest, not disagreeing with any of that, but just the, the the overpopulation thing. Just remember that this car. well I mean it's been with us I think the ancient Greeks even had a go at it they were sort of like there was sort of overpopulation worries then and then Malthus Thomas Malthus a nasty little man actually uh, by all accounts (laughs) wrote a very famous book an essay on the principle of population published in 1798 and and the idea there was that population growth would always outstrip the resources to, to be able to sustain it so ultimately you would always run out of you know your population would wobble in a kind of narrow band defined by your ability to feed it and when you got to the top end starvation famine all Mm. the rest would take you down to the bottom end oversimplification there's lots of people who subscribe to it and all that kind of thing but just remember that since then the interesting sort of counter to that point is that the population has grown many 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 times since then and actually as the population has got larger life for most people has got better now the interesting sort of point in amongst that. And I would recommend a book called Super abundance, quite an interesting sort of recent sort of attempt to sort of categorise some of this. And the idea is that the more of us there are, the better life gets. And that's because, and Laura was hinting at this, is that there's more of us to innovate and to create abundance where there was none before. And this was characterized by a really famous bet in the 1980s between one guy called Paul Ehrlich who was a doomer and he wrote a book called a population bomb saying the world was going to end and Britain was going to be under the water by 2000 and all sorts of terrible stuff and was recommending population controls as a result and this guy called Julian Simon who was a kind of hero economist turned around and said okay well Paul you pick your five most resource supply constrained commodities at the moment at the beginning of the decade and i will bet you by the end of the decade the price on all of them will be lower because we'll have found new ways to mine them exploit them so on and Julian Simon famously won the bet, and it's not that we can't do damage to the planet, and we can't kind of you know, and the, there isn't problems to face, and you know, Laura alluded to them, there, there is stuff. But I think fatalism with regards to our you know ability to do that is, is is counterproductive. You know, there needs to be action, not a kind of like oh we've already lost the yeah. fight kind of thing. And that and part of that is a belief in ourselves and our ability to get over it. Final quick point on the aging thing. Remember that a lot of these studies rest on an idea that a 50 or 60 year old of today is comparable to a 50 or 60 year old of 20 years hence or even 20 years behind. That's just not true. Things have changed. Things have changed and the health revolution will change that dramatically. Jobs are different. As I always say, like my great grandfather would look at what I do and say, it's not work, mate. So, you know, you need to just remember that things change in that sense and that life expectancies and so on, what a normal look, life looks like. And again, Laura alluded to this earlier, you know, it changes over time. And that, although economists love to use demographics because it seems to be slow moving and therefore relatively predictable, it's, the, it's an example of the inductive fallacy, you know, using the narrow mm. to predict abroad. On a 50 year time horizon, everything is up for grabs. Population, the age of the average age of the population is one small strand of that. The technological context, in my opinion, will dominate anyway.
0: It's quite a nice uplifting point, though, that one side of the debate. The more of us there are, the better life gets. But yes, it's it's, important. it's not quite that simple, though. And, I, and yeah. there, there is a limit, probably.
2: There, well, there must be somewhere. somewhere but I think I would, I would contest our ability to know it from this vantage point, given our track record of innovation and incredible success for the last 200 or so years.
0: Next on my list. Is another very topical question, something completely different to what we've just discussed. It's it's probably quite a unique question asked by one individual. And obviously anything we say is not investment advice. But the question is sort of around, should investors right now be coming out of, say, stocks and buying things like UK government bonds, otherwise known as gilts? no thoughts there uh,
2: yeah (laughs) (laughs) well no i mean i I understand the urge and we're getting a lot of those questions and i'm sure you know every everywhere on the street is it's an interesting sort of response but in the way that we think about the world and the markets you're always trying to think about not just one strand of the future that extends in a straight line from the moment we're in but you're trying to think about hundreds of billions of potential futures that extend in all sorts of lines away from this point in a full range now there are some of those which, where it's going to be better for the next year or two to own, uh, to just stick with that guilt. But there are many where you will, by doing so and only owning that guilt or that bond or that sort of, you know, that part of the market where you're going to miss out on the upside that Laura as well. There's an opportunity cost. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity cost because investing in stocks and other stuff is a call option on future human productivity. And I think what we're both saying is that that call option is quite attractively priced in many ways because... That future productivity growth is potentially quite exciting at this moment. So why would you give that up in order to just have your upside capped? Now it's good that bonds can play a much better role in portfolios at the moment because of the yield they're you know they're offering. Attractive diversification, you know, investing is always changing in that way. But don't get just carried don't away. put all your eggs in one basket. Put all your eggs in one basket. That's a simple way of putting it. You could have answered it for me.
1: Yeah, I think rising yields have forced a a question into the mainstream, which is, is this an absolute no-brainer? And, and actually, we we think quite differently about it. We, we, we think that companies with pricing power tend to navigate inflation better. Mm. And um, what's really interesting is that many people will sort of uh, go for that flight to safety in bonds as a sensible asset for mm. tough times. But higher inflation can really erode the return from bonds. That's why our team focuses on the safer end of equities where, where we get companies with not too much debt. And then that gets you the attractive upside from the opportunity Will was talking about. Uh, but they're less likely to go down so much in down markets.
0: No, really, really good and interesting point. Right, I think we've probably just got time to squeeze in one more. Yes. We talk about emerging markets every week here. It came up again, no surprises, given everything going on with China, in the context of their so-called property bubble. How would you feel about that from an equity lens, but also a kind of fixed income or, or bond lens?
2: So, EM um,
0: Tricky to answer quickly.
2: Tricky to answer quickly. I mean, I would just say that from a strategic asset allocation perspective, you know, the big kind of major uh, organisation of your assets that we spend an awful lot of time on... You know, we consider emerging market debt local and hard. We, so we we want you lending to emerging market governments, high quality companies, even slightly lower quality companies in some some areas. We think that adds attractive uh, return and diversification appeal. And we we think the same of stocks. With China, don't get too carried away about your ability to call cool the economic cycle. There's some houses getting quite excited about a sequential stabilization in some aspects of the property market. It is a giant, giant property bubble that is going to take some time to manage. And that's not the only challenge in the you know Chinese policymakers' intro. They have got a really, really tough, tough moment. And, and you need to find other sources of growth. You can't urbanize twice, as we've been saying. And that's the main driver of what you've seen over the last 30 years. For the next 30, don't bet against them, you know, as we've talked about, you know, that, that story about the U.S. in the, you know, mid-19th century and, you know, the, you know, a British person turning around and saying, well, all they do is mass produce, steal IP, they've got... You and know. how that's changed. Well, I mean, at that moment, the U.S. was already, you know, taking over. So it didn't look like it was going to soar to the front of the pack until it did. And remember, you know, no one has ever really tried a capitalist economy with a communist regime sitting on top of it. I've tried bits of it, but just don't don't get too carried away with the debate, I think. Probably keep an open mind.
1: Yeah, and I suppose we think, how do you get exposure without taking on too much risk? (laughs) Um, And generally, we've been perhaps a little warier than than we've been in the past, more recently given some surprise announcements the Chinese government around their focus on common prosperity. Uh, Beyond that, uh, we are able to access the revenues or the sales, the business from emerging markets through some of these global companies that we own, but they tend to be Western listed, tend to have great transparency, better corporate governance. And generally, we feel that that's more in keeping with the transparent and predictable returns we're trying to generate.
0: Brilliant. Will, thank you as ever. Laura, a particular thanks to you for coming in today. Really, really appreciate it. We got through an awful lot. We didn't get through all of them. It shows you just how complex things are at the moment, but hopefully there's some good insight there. So have a good weekend and speak next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.